The following is an encore presentation of With Good Reason. Hi, I'm Sarah McConnell. Welcome to With Good Reason. There was a time when a proud and rebellious American stood tall and defended an unpopular position. He was going to build a wall. And I will have Mexico pay for that wall. Mark my words. No, not that wall. Today we're talking about a different American builder who promised Americans a wall of separation between church and state. That's right, Mr. Thomas Jefferson. Although Jefferson managed to get his wall built right into the Constitution, he didn't have an easy time delivering on his promise. Even today, there are some weak spots on that wall. And today, we'll take a tour We'll hear from two biblical scholars who set out to fact-check politicians on their uses of the Bible. And we'll hear from an evangelical professor who looks at how new technology is changing the politics of faith. But first, we go back to Jefferson's day for a look at how he tried to build a microcosm of secular America at the University of Virginia. Here's our associate producer, John. I like to imagine it in the pouring rain. The students have assembled on the lawn, its pristine green grass long since churned into a muddy mess, a result of their horseback gunplay. They're facing north, staring at the rain-soaked steps of a half-completed temple. And from the south, as he would have liked, comes Thomas Jefferson. It's the last year of his life. He's ancient and shabby, his newfound poverty shows. He reaches the front of the crowd, alights on the marble steps, turns to face his people. And he weeps. He had come here to the University of Virginia to mourn the death of his dream. When Jefferson planned the University of Virginia, he had imagined a secular utopia, a walled garden of learning where students would come to worship the written word and observe the sacraments of science and reason. What Jefferson had not anticipated were his students. Here's Jody Lahendro, the University of Virginia's historic preservation architect. He just assumed that these plantation sons uh, would want to come here and just sit at the feet of these European scholars and lap up the knowledge. But instead of the enlightened sons of the southern aristocracy, he got drinkers, gamblers, spoiled louts. Here's Kate Atkinson, one of the University of Virginia's student guides. The people who were going to school and getting an education were young white men who were very affluent. They really had no reason to care about an education. They would do this thing called calithumping, where they would get on their horses and they would trot up and down the lawn and take out their shotguns and shoot the clock on the rotunda. Because if the clock was stopped, they wouldn't know what time it was and then they didn't have to go to class. I genuinely believe Thomas Jefferson died thinking his university had been a failure. Mm 
Jefferson had wanted to build a new kind of university. We remember him as the architect of the wall between church and state, and true to his reputation, he wanted his university to be free from all religion. All American institutions of higher learning up to that point in time were associated with some sort of a church. That's Richard Guy Wilson, the Commonwealth Professor of Architectural History at UVA. These other universities weren't just affiliated with the church. Often, the whole college would be organized around a central chapel, a visual reminder that theology was the highest of sciences. Jefferson did away with all that, and at the focal point of his village, he placed the rotunda. half-scale model of the Pantheon, it was to be a symbol of America's inheritance of ancient wisdom from pagan Rome. Within it would be contained a great library, its ceiling painted with a map of the heavens adorned by the highest orders of classical architecture, the pure mind of his noble institution. The center of the university, it becomes no longer really religious in the Western sense, but it also maybe represents a new type of, dare call it religion, one worships the book. Jefferson never got to see his library completed. And while he was still warm in the grave, opponents took up a campaign for a Gothic chapel, a Christian counterpoint to his literary temple. It took half a century but they got it. And to show the meanings of this, at the dedication of the chapel, Maximilian de Vere, who was a professor of modern language, said, and I am paraphrasing, behind us rises the curved dome of paganism. In front of us rises the arch of Christianity. Meanwhile, Jefferson's perfect classical sphere, the rotunda, was rapidly becoming an architectural Frankenstein. Chemistry labs belched smoke from the basement, water tanks oozed into the walls, swelling the brickwork. And in the factory-like annex, early electrical wiring sparked ominously. All of this culminated in the Great Fire of 1895. Starting in the annex, it ravaged the building, collapsing even Jefferson's noble dome. When the rotunda was restored, it was never quite the same. Too small for the library and with little else to occupy it, it became an empty shell, a place for fancy parties and flower shows. Few students ever set foot in it. It was hardly the swelling mind of Jefferson's day. But this fall, all that changed. In 2012, the university embarked on a four-year, multi-million-dollar renovation project aimed at returning life to the rotunda. A horde of architects, engineers, and artisans under the leadership of people like Jody Lehendro worked to recreate Jefferson's hand-carved capitals and redesign the ancient building for modern use. Go in there today, and it's teeming with life. Students cram overstuffed chairs and beautifully appointed study spaces. Tourists peruse museums on its bottom floor. And in the dome room, the noble mind of Jefferson's hallowed ground, books once again adorn the walls. Here's Jody. We've had over 30,000 visitors the first two to three months where we didn't have that many 
the last year that the building was open. The learning is happening, and it's a center of, of life in the academical village again. So, Jefferson's Rotunda fared well in the end. But it's less clear how his notion of politics free from religion has survived over time. Frances Flannery is a professor of religion at James Madison University. She's been studying how politicians use the Bible and has recently published a new collection of essays called The Bible in Political Discourse. She joins me with her co-editor, Rodney Werlein. We found 14 biblical scholars from around the world, actually, who were willing to uh, go out of their comfort zone of working in antiquity, which is normally what we do, to uh, speak on these contemporary issues. Because as biblical scholars, we had noticed for a long time that politicians would cite a biblical verse and say it meant something, leaving us to ask where they got that interpretation. Are you only referring to the people who are invoking the Bible for conservative causes? Oh, absolutely not. I mean, I've heard um, liberal theologians, liberal ministers in sermons, uh, liberal friends who all study the Bible and who will immediately run to their liberal position and, and use a verse on almost the same kind of way that a conservative would use a verse to support a position that uh, you know, sides with their uh, liberal ideas, and yet I knew at the moment that the text really, really did not say what they were claiming it said. President Obama used the Bible to support his policy on gun control. He gave a speech and cited the moving story of Zavian Dobson, who was a teenager who was shot protecting his friends, and President Obama cited John fifteen thirteen, greater love has no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. Using the Bible in that way gives a kind of rhetorical power and a moral authority to politicians who use it. And I, I do admit that this is done more on the conservative side of politics, but it's important to see that it happens on both sides of the aisle. But why not be able to do that? Why not use the Bible and its prevalence in our lives and culture to make powerful arguments to persuade the electorate. I will say that my position on this changed because I was more open-minded when I started the book than I think I ended up being. It can be a very dangerous step to invoke the Bible as a politician, assuming that the Bible says whatever one's own interpretation is, not even realizing that that interpretation is shaped by a tradition not held by everyone that you're representing. This is one of the things I became um, more attentive to when we were working through the book, is really the sort of different ways the Bible can be used, sometimes sort of directly to support a particular policy, and then sometimes more, as you were saying, a kind of flourish in a speech to inspire or to encourage. So, for example, Hillary Clinton near the end of the uh, campaign is in Florida and looks to the crowd and says, do not be weary in well-doing, which is something, you know, came from her Methodist background, I'm sure she heard as a small child. The greater question is, how do we distinguish between the Bible used for direct, directly for policy and the Bible used in sort of these rhetorical flourishes? And in the end, do they do the same thing? That's a difficult 
uh, conversation to continue, I think. For me, after working on this project, I found one very clear line that I do not feel comfortable with politicians crossing, and that is directly using the Bible, uh, or rather their interpretation of the Bible, to form policy. Did you see that? Uh, We have seen that, and I think that we may continue to see that. In the vice presidential debate, uh, the Republican candidate, Mike Pence, um, was asked about his views on abortion, and he cited a verse from the Bible, from Jeremiah, without actually saying that it was from the Bible, uh, before you were formed in the womb, I knew you. And he said in the, during that debate that he would be comfortable forming policy based on his interpretation of the Bible. Now, as a biblical scholar, I would argue I'm reading that verse even more literally than he is because that verse applied to the prophet Jeremiah, and a similar verse applies to the prophet Isaiah. And so the sense of the verse is that this is an exception. These are exceptional people that God knew in the womb, not that God knows everyone in the womb. The Democratic vice presidential candidate Tim Kaine also quoted the Bible, and he quoted a paraphrase of Matthew 15 from the fullness of the heart, the mouth speaks. Um, And he went on to say that when Donald Trump says that women should be punished for abortions or Mexicans or criminals, or John McCain's not a hero, he's showing you who he is. So this is a use of the Bible, not to form policy, but to explain Cain's inner thinking and his own convictions. I'm somewhat uncomfortable with him quoting the Bible in that setting, but a lot less uncomfortable than I am using it to form policy directly. This is not about whether a politician is right or wrong in his or her interpretation of a biblical verse. What's different about the approach of biblical scholars is that whether it agrees with our personal theology or politics or not, we try to figure out what it originally meant, and we just let it be. And the essay that I worked on, on poverty and work, many biblical authors are very aware that riches pose a danger. However, we also have to balance out other texts which imagine that people are wealthy because they're good and they're blessed by God. So there's no doubt that both are in the Bible. And so that's exactly the sort of problem, you know, we try to sort out or try to live with or just let it stand unresolved in tension with each other. Are you seeing that politicians do invoke the Bible for contemporary economics? Oh, certainly. You know, verses like, the poor are always with you. On the other side, uh, references to, um, if you do it to the least of these, my brothers, you've done it unto me. The right adding to it, the passage in Second Corinthians, which says, if you don't work, you don't eat. All of those verses have very particular context, and they're, they're quite different from the settings in which they're being evoked. The least of these, for example, in the text that's mentioned in Matthew, may in fact not refer to the poor in general, but to those who are followers of Jesus. The nations that are gathered in that judgment scene are actually going to be judged on how they treated those who followed Jesus. And so it might not be a general statement about poverty at all, but it might be a statement about a particular group. In all of these issues that we uh, decided to examine, we found that the Bible very often did not speak to these issues directly. It did not know anything about human-induced climate change or a sexual identity of homosexuality as we understand it today 
or the controversy of teaching evolution versus creationism in schools. It just doesn't speak to that context. And so to cherry pick verses that support a policy position is dangerous because the people in the room listening too often also haven't read it and have decided that must be the one position that the Bible is maintaining. So an example of this is Senator Inhofe, who is the chair of the Senate Environment and Public Works Committee. As it turns out, he was very influential in swaying a vote against recognition that climate change is caused by humans. That vote failed by one vote in the Senate. His religious evidence and biblical evidence is Genesis 8:22, which reads, As long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. He interprets that to mean that there cannot be human-induced climate change. As a biblical scholar, when I read that verse in context, it, it just doesn't say that at all. What does it say to you? It comes at the end of the flood story where humans have sinned so much that their sin has spread, in fact, to the earth and to animals, and God has decided to punish everyone with a flood, wipe it out, and start over. The promise that God makes is actually not that the human species will continue, and it's not that God will prevent humans from wreaking destruction on the earth. In fact, what God does is to make a pact with the earth, the animals, and humans that God won't punish the earth and the animals on account of human wickedness because humans are so great. I could go into more detail, but the point is, it's not about climate change. Let me ask you a few questions that I'll call the lightning round, because I think some of your chapters and essays in this collection of 14 in your book are fascinating. How about women, the Bible, and the 19th Amendment to the Constitution? Oh, I thought the historical essays especially, I just found them fascinating, and especially that one, to find out that the Bible is used on both sides of the women's suffrage issue. And, and also that those founders of that suffrage movement were such fine biblical scholars. I mean, they were at the forefront and the cutting edge of biblical scholarship at that time. Chapter 9, Tracing the Use of the Bible in Colonial Land Claims in North America. How was that case made? You know, there was just a level of sort of anger and sadness at the end of that for the way in which the Bible had been used to uh, justify genocides, taking away land. When I called my sister and asked her, which essay did you like the most? And she said, that one disturbed me the most. And uh, so I think for a lot of people, that essay is going to be a very moving essay, especially after we just watched the, the scenes at Standing Rock. That's exactly what I wanted to bring up, because I, I don't think... I would have thought about that as a continuation of the kind of colonial land use claims. The basis of the claims were not only to wrap it up in a kind of Christian imperialism, but also to make the claim that God would give the land to whoever improved it economically, whoever worked the land, and to see in such stark relief the interests of the fossil fuel companies over and against indigenous religious claims made me reflect on this essay over and over in the past few weeks. 
fascinating. Francis and Rodney, thank you for sharing your insights with me on With Good Reason. Well, thank you so much for having us. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much. It was such a pleasure. Francis Flannery is a professor of religion and philosophy at James Madison University. Her new book is called The Bible in Political Discourse. She joined me with her co-editor, Rodney Werlein. Coming up next, how teleprojected pastors are changing evangelism in America. Evangelical America is changing, and not just its politics. New digital technologies are making it easier to reach thousands of worshipers at once. Sean Connable is a lecturer in communication studies at Christopher Newport University, and he's made it his mission to find out how these new technologies are being used in America's churches and what it's doing for the politics of the faithful. Sean, you've been looking into the new ways Christianity and digital culture are mixing. What does religion look like on the Internet these days? What are you seeing? I think it's a really kind of weird blend of face-to-face interactions, like we would consider the the, the day-to-day church, and uh, things as simple as online services. So the entire service recorded uh, with service times where you go and at three o'clock on a Thursday evening, they have an online service where you sit down in your pajamas and your cup of coffee and you watch church. Can they have big audiences? You don't really know about the online services unless you attend that church or attend its website. So it could be as many as, you know, a few hundred people. It could be thousands. I mean, who really knows? What else? In the physical space is multi-site churches where you go into and you sit down in an actual sanctuary and they lower a screen to the floor and they project the pastor broadcasting from another site onto the screen. And so he looks like he's standing on the stage in front of you and he's talking to you with all of the emotional um, kind of connection that you would expect from a pastor, but he's not there. And that is to reach more people in disparate locations? Yeah, um, I think that's part, part of it's what we would call the multi-site church model. It's this idea of trying to get away from the traditional mega church, these huge kind of centralized buildings. And putting together kind of small little enclaves in different communities, and they're all connected to the same place. So in my hometown, there's one of these multi-site churches, and I, uh, we walked into one of these churches on a Sunday morning, and they lowered the screen to the floor, and the digital man was talking, and he asked a question, and people in the room raised their hand as if he could see them. And midway through the service, there was a technical glitch, and he got frozen in this really kind of outlandish position, and it took a minute and a half for anyone to come up and, and kind of do anything. And when they did, the people around me were shaking their head like we were waking up from a dream. And when they left, you're hearing folks, well, that was, a good, that was a good church today. Man, I'm so glad I was here. And I looked around and my wife looked at me and said, what happened? I was like, I have no idea what we just experienced. And so that's kind of where we started. And now we've, we've looked at several multi-site churches. We're working on trying to say, what is this kind of multi-site movement and what does it mean for us when we blend the kind of the digital world and the physical world of, of, of practiced religion together? What, what comes out at the end of that? How many such multi-site churches are there in America? Hundreds. And, and it's a growing movement. And if it's done well, 
then each one of those sites has a pastor that meets people face to face. The churches that we're going to that we're concerned about are the ones that don't really have that. Like, for instance, in one of the churches that we attended, everyone was talking about how the pastor loves you, how much, how glad he is that you're here. What's really, really interesting is you investigate that church, you never see the pastor. There's no way to contact him. There is no way to ever get to know that person outside of the performance that you see on the screen. I mean, some of these churches have like, for instance, ministers of production, like an entire production staff, people with steady cams. The entire thing is a performance. There's dance and there's music and there's lights and there's absolutely nothing asked of you. And that for me is what's concerning. I'm curious, throughout the past election season, did you hear many of these digital pastors refer to current events and politics? Or are they mostly preaching the word of the Bible? It's a little bit of both. Statements saying, uh, you know, I don't, I, I'm not going to ask you to take a political stance, but there's one party that believes in protecting the lives of the unborn and the other one that does not. So they're creating these kind of implicit arguments that the entire election should be focused around this one issue. And, and I don't think it's a new phenomenon. I think it's been going around for a while. I mean, you look at organization like Focus on the Family. You go on Focus on the Family and you start researching issues. Let's say, for instance, the SCOTUS decision on same-sex marriage. Focus very much spoke out against the SCOTUS decision, was telling Christians, here's how you should respond in the face of the SCOTUS decision, pushing a narrative of how we should be concerned about our religious liberties and how your church is going to come under fire because of this decision. A very, very isolated narrative that people can't escape if they don't leave that website and its kind of corresponding partners. It just upholds this idea that they're under attack. It upholds this idea that their values and the values that have formed the, you know, America as a culture are now under attack. Uh, when that's not necessarily true. I mean, if anything, the Supreme Court worked very, very hard within that decision to say churches are exempt from, you know, having to hold same-sex services because it's still a protection of religion. So there's a really interesting interaction that comes between this kind of digital spaces and the people that, that choose them as, as a means by which to, to get their news and their information. How many people do you think are more like you, deeply faithful, but seeking a more balanced viewpoint? Um, I think there's a lot. I think there's, or if nothing else, there's a growing community. And I think that if anything, that's one thing that this election has kind of brought to the fore is that you're beginning to see a splintering of voices within the evangelical community. I mean, for decades, you're talking about a political voting base that voted on basically two issues, family values and same-sex marriage. Uh, and the research proves that. What you're looking at now, you began to see the evangelical community splinter a little bit. There was a fascinating article that came out just a couple of weeks ago by a guy named Russell Moore, who's in charge of the Southern Baptist Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission. And what that is, is kind of, in some ways, the organization's kind of ethical arm. Russell Moore actually published an article, and I never, as, as a Southern Baptist, I never thought I would see this happen, where he says, maybe we need to remove ourselves from politics. Maybe we should step back from political engagement as a religious community and start living as a cultural minority, that we shouldn't be trying to be the majority voice. We should be the voice in the wilderness, if that makes sense. Uh, and I think part of that comes back to why evangelicals are involved in American politics to begin with. I mean, the, the amount of influence that you see now stems from the late 70s and the early 80s when evangelicals were looking at our culture, American culture, and saying, where have we gone wrong? 
I mean, it was the end of the 70s. Things were a little bit crazy. And so they said, we need to reinvest ourselves in becoming the, the religious and the, and the moral voice driving American politics. And what you find now is they're standing in and saying, well, maybe we've gone too far. Maybe politics is affecting us more than we want it to. I think the concern that comes from evangelical communities in terms of their interaction with, with politics is they're beginning to not be able to see where one ends and the other one begins. That the two have been married together for so long that you're beginning to see, for instance, God preached on the Senate floor and politics preached from the pulpit. Where would you like to see us go from here? I don't know. Um, I think part of it is, as a scholar, one of the things I would really like to see is more of a discourse between religion and academics. I think both could communicate some things that are really powerful to the other. People of faith, and I want to kind of separate faith and religion for a second. People of faith need to understand how religious works as a social institution what it does for society and how it operates in society. And that's something that academics in a lot of ways is equipped to talk about. And in some ways, I think I agree with uh, Russell Moore. Maybe there needs to be a separation between religion and politics. That religion needs to step back a little bit and kind of reassess what it does and why it does it, particularly after this last election. Well, Sean, this has been fascinating. I'm so grateful to you for sharing your research with me on With Good Reason. Oh, thank you so much. I appreciate the time. Thank you. Sean Connable is a lecturer in communication studies at Christopher Newport University. This is With Good Reason. We'll be right back. Welcome back. You're listening to an encore presentation of With Good Reason. While the founders believed strongly in God and worshipped in their own ways, many were not, by their own admission, Christian. Benjamin Franklin said, for example, that lighthouses were more helpful than churches. And James Madison, in fighting words, said a just government does not need the clergy. Overall, they challenged elements of Christianity that they found socially destructive and individually limiting, elements that they thought ran against the Enlightenment's commitment to reason and the rights of men. How then did a nation under God, as our money and our Pledge of Allegiance say, emerge from people with such unorthodox views and such distaste for the mixing of religion and politics. To answer that, we turn to David Holmes, Professor Emeritus of Religion at the College of William and Mary, and author of The Religion of the Founding Fathers. I'm thinking about how Europeans wring their hands over the so-called religiosity of America Mm -hmm. today. And do you think that is directly related to arriving on these shores and establishing the 13 colonies? Ultimately, it's a mystery as to why the U.S. is is so religious. uh, But you do think it is? Well, I don't and I do. Uh, Every time I think that it's exaggerated, something comes up that makes me think otherwise. 
the only thing that is really indisputable is that people do talk about religion and attend church and synagogue and now mosque uh, more than in, in virtually any other country. Uh, we were a uh, city on a hill in the Puritan idea. We were a commonwealth of differing religions getting along well in Pennsylvania. We uh, were heirs of the Enlightenment and its concern for separation of church and state, of pulpit and altar. Uh, and all of these things seem to have combined along with the heritage of democracy to um, uh, make us into more of a religious nation than, than Europe. Religion is not old hat yet in America. Having written this book, The Religion of the Founding Fathers, what should we understand if we take nothing else away from what you've discovered? We should understand a quotation that begins and ends the book uh, from a novelist that says, the past is a foreign country. They do things differently there. They had a different outlook uh, than uh, most of us and a different outlook than most of the mainstream churches. They were either deists or Unitarians. Anglicans on the outside, but seeing Anglicanism through a deistic prism. Help me understand what a deist is. We don't talk about deists much today. What it is is essentially a five-point view of religion. Uh, There is a God. A God ought to be worshipped. Number three, morality, being moral, is the best way to worship God. Number four, there's a life after death. Number five, the righteous will be rewarded there, the evil will be punished. How is this different from anything we know? Well, there's no chosen people. There's no scripture as revelation, no Hebrew Bible, no Christian testament. There's no Jesus. There's no John the Baptist. There's no prophets or Apostle Paul. Was it sort of a hip avant-garde new religion at that time? You know, hip avant-garde seems to indicate a trendiness that I don't think they felt. Uh, I think they felt that they had rediscovered common sense religion and were amazed that others had not come upon it earlier and, in fact, found predecessors who had come across it. So how much did Deus believe in the Bible? Thomas Paine is just as negative as can be about Scripture and makes fun of it. Thomas Paine was uh, uh, the personification of the counterculture in many ways. He dressed like that. He was of English Quaker heritage. He uh, wrote, of course, the great pamphlets supporting the American Revolution. Then he went over to do the same thing for France. And because the alliance of monarchy and altar was so great in Europe and in England, Paine felt it had held human freedom down. All the founding fathers felt that way to some extent. And so uh, he wrote the classic book, partially in a French prison, uh, on deism called The Age of Reason. Jefferson used to sit in church and tune out parts of the message he didn't believe in, and I think that some people will tune out parts of Paine's message they didn't believe in. He gets quite vitriolic, but at other points, he's quite, quite funny. He had a way with language. Who of the six founding fathers that you've chosen to focus on was probably most influenced by him? Uh, Monroe rescued Paine from French prison. 
And Monroe and Payne clearly talked not just about politics, not just about the weather, but also about religion, because this was a great concern of Payne, and he just finished The Age of Reason, which is an attack on organized religion. And Monroe turns out to be the most skeptical of the founding fathers. So I would say he's the prime candidate. The other one, very briefly, would be Franklin, who was really the mentor of Payne. Franklin is uh, influenced by Payne, but is more conservative than Payne. A lot of us probably only know Franklin through his uh, quips about living a healthy lifestyle Mm -hmm. and a prudent lifestyle. Mm -hmm. And yet you find him to also have deep religious beliefs? I don't know about deep. Uh, By age 15, he'd read himself into deism. Uh, self-educated after age 10, intended apparently for the ministry by his father, but no childhood accounts of Franklin indicate that he was ministerial material at that time. And uh, he just read widely, and by age 15, he'd read the leading deistic writers. And it became a part of his being. When you talk about his, his you know, aphorisms, I mean, they often stress morality. You know, Puritanism did too, but uh, Franklin's views were that that one shows one's religion by doing good. An earlier Franklin wrote uh, an epitaph for his grave that went as follows, the body of B. Franklin printer, like the cover of an old book, its contents worn out and stripped of its lettering and gilding, lies here food for worms, but the work shall not be lost, for it will, as he believed, appear once more in a new and more elegant edition revised and corrected by the author, with a capital A. He here is really speaking of resurrection of the body, and, uh, and he never lost the, the, entirely the Puritan tradition, the Calvinist tradition he was raised in. So that's the early Franklin, but the, the Franklin right before his death uh, writes like this to the Congregationalist president of Yale, Ezra Stiles. Uh, Stiles, uh, maybe in a nosy way, you know, wrote to the Franklin, who was he had heard was near death, asking him what he really believed. And here is how he replied to the president of Yale. Here is my creed. I believe in one God, creator of the universe, that he governs the world by his providence, that he ought to be worshipped, that the most acceptable service we can render him is doing good to his other children, that the soul of man is immortal and will be treated with justice in another life, respecting its conduct in this. These I take to be the fundamental principles of all sound religion. And then Franklin goes on to praise Jesus of Nazareth. And then he ends, I have some doubts as to his divinity, though it is a question I do not dogmatize upon, having never studied it, and think it needless to busy myself with it now when I expect soon an opportunity of knowing the truth with less trouble. Uh, when he died, uh, there was outpouring, not just of grief, but also of all the clergy in Philadelphia marching in procession for him. What about George Washington? Did he pray fervently to God on the battlefield? I have no evidence of that. He directed that his troops pray, and when he before the Revolutionary War, when he was a British officer, he, he led Sunday services when no chaplain was around. 
so he believed in prayer. Uh, but the statue at the Freedom's Foundation in Pennsylvania has him praying in agony, presumably for an American victory or for something. Uh, I can tell you one odd thing is that had we gone to an 18th century Church of England church service or Episcopal church service, there would have been at least one man standing during prayers, and that was George Washington. As opposed to kneeling. Well, they they knelt or they crouched, did the Presbyterian crouch, where you kind of grab your nose and go halfway down to the floor. Kneeling meant kneeling on kneelers, which you had to bring to church yourself. They weren't provided. Or kneeling on the bare floor, turning around and using the box pews for your support. So for some reason, Washington stood. Now, that's the early Christian form of prayer. That's what's come back again in many Christian churches, that you stand. Jesus' Lord's Prayer begins, when you stand and pray, say, our Father, art in heaven. Nevertheless, it's it's rather odd, and his um, granddaughter seemed to think it was odd, too, and you get a sense of Washington being perhaps the only person in the church standing praying, but he does that. Uh, He did believe in prayer, um, but in the 19th century, a lot of stories were told about his religiosity that seemed to have no basis in fact. And he could be a little bit casual about his Sunday devotions. We have indications that he might have gone 15 to 20 Sundays a year. When he lived in Philadelphia and New York in connection with the new government, he went more. It was much easier to get to church At the same time, we do have diary entries where it's clear that he seems not even to have thought of church, but went hunting on Sunday and so on. No one should ever question the sincerity of Washington's religion. It was very sincere. He was a sincere Christian in his own eyes. We would see him as very much tinctured by deism. That's not unusual. Uh, Had we been born at that time in his class, the odds heavily favor we would have been tinctured by deism in the same way that Young people are being influenced by evangelicalism today. And um, he did not really have the kind of mind that asked why the world was so. I mean, Madison did, Jefferson did, Adams did, Adams to, to a large extent, but not Monroe or Washington. Tell me about the religious views of Adams, who sort of stood out among the founding fathers that you looked well, at. Well, this is one of the ironies. Uh, today we think of Unitarians is believing in one God at most, you know, or praying to whom it may concern, burning question marks in the lawns of members of the religious right who move into their neighborhood, something like this, a lot of funny Unitarian jokes. But Unitarianism in in the early period uh, in the U.S. was supernaturalist. Adams uh, believed in Jesus as a messenger of divinity. He just didn't believe that Jesus was equal with God. That's Unitarianism. God is a unit, not a triunit, you know, so they don't believe in the Trinity. And uh, Adams uh, was the only one of the founding fathers who would use traditional orthodox terms for Jesus in his presidential addresses, such as uh, redeemer or mediator and advocate. Now, those are orthodox terms that evangelicals use today. Adams firmly believed those. He found a lot of man-made additions to Christianity, but he very much believed that Christianity was the religion of the world, and it had just been medievalized and had too much stuff added to it. And so, oddly enough, in some ways, the most 
traditionalist and orthodox of the six founding fathers I've looked at was the Unitarian John Adams, not the the uh, Anglicans. Tell me, of course, about possibly the most complex religiously of the founding fathers, Thomas Jefferson. Yes, complex because he was a man on a religious quest all his adult life, and that means that people's views change uh, as they think things through, as they read different books. Uh, At one point, he seems to have given up when Christianity felt he could not hold his deistic foundation of thought and be a Christian, but then he read a book by a British Unitarian named Joseph Priestley who moved to the uh, U.S. um, and became a friend of Jefferson's that showed that a lot of Christianity— in Priestley's view, was man-made, but that there was a fulcrum of truth. And Jefferson seems to have settled into Christianity at uh, that point. Uh, He's best described as a conservative Unitarian, I think. Unitarians fell into two categories, those who believed that Jesus was a messenger from above, just not God, and those who believed that Jesus was a human being lifted up into a semi-divine status because of his peculiar morality and obedience to God while on earth. The mark of that would be the biblical words, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. That was the moment of adoption according to this theory of Jesus into the Godhead. These arguments go back to the earliest centuries of Christianity. At one point, the majority of Christians were what we call subordinationists, Christ above humanity but God above Christ. Jefferson falls neatly into neither category, but he does believe Jesus was the man, the moral exemplar for all of us. And um, he got, as many of us do, a little more conservative as the years went on. He found a place for prayer. He consigned his children to the Episcopal Church. And in an interesting uh, episode, when Tom Paine came to pay a visit to Monticello, his two daughters were there. They were Orthodox Episcopalians, and they did not want him to entertain Tom Paine, whom they considered detrimental to Christianity. But Jefferson did. How did he come to be a Unitarian? Was Peter Jefferson, his father, a Unitarian? No, Anglican. You were born into Anglicanism in Virginia. Farther away you got from the Chesapeake Bay, the more it waned. But uh, Piedmont, Virginia, was heavily Anglican. But then he went to college, at the College of William & Mary, and uh, was exposed to a product of the Scots Enlightenment, William Small, and uh, Small, and the books that he read, and his fellow classmates moved him towards deism. What role did William & Mary play in spreading deist thought through the colonies? Well, William & Mary was the center of deistic thought in um, colonial Virginia, late colonial Virginia. That's not surprising. Virtually every college was... uh, a hotbed of deism. Adams changed from uh, Trinitarian belief to uh, what later became Unitarian belief at Harvard. Yale was a hotbed. Who did we leave out? We haven't touched Madison yet. Well, Monroe was the most private about his religion, but Madison would have been the second. Uh, I mean, Adams and Jefferson, in a way, wore their religion on their sleeves. By that, I mean you could find out what it was because of his religiosity. What religiosity did he have? Well, it was rumored that he was not orthodox, you see. And he'd written notes on the state of Virginia in which he called into question 
the existence of two parents for humankind, I mean, Adam and Eve, and where he called into question the worldwide flood and a few other things. And He was a heretic. Yes. And the... Uh, and others were warning that, you know, Bibles would have to be burned, you know, if Jefferson were president. The same kind of outcry that occurred when John F. Kennedy ran for president, that the Pope would have, you know, might come up the Potomac River, you know, in a submarine and suddenly appear. <laughs> uh, but he, he, he won the election. Uh, and uh, after that, he's more open. But back to Madison. And he uh, did read the Bible regularly. Oh, he read the Bible regularly. He, uh, he revered Jesus of Nazareth, believed in prayer. He believed in life after death. He and Adam's corresponding uh, consolation about deaths of loved ones, you know, talking about meeting them again. You don't find that when Monroe loses his son. Not once does he mention in a letter to friends any consolation of religion. I think he was a uh, skeptic. But Madison was, was very private about his religion. Started out very orthodox, was sent by his parents to what was held to be the most orthodox of the, uh, of the colleges. That's College of New Jersey or Princeton, uh, where he studied under a president who was a signer of the Declaration, John Witherspoon, uh, influenced by the Enlightenment, but uh, Nevertheless, a man who believed that Holy Scripture was the prime source of revelation for humanity. Madison stayed an extra year to study Hebrew and and divinity under Witherspoon. There were no seminaries in that day. Came back to his house, started holding house services. Uh, And then he moved, the best way we can explain it maybe, is that he moved from there on in in the circles of the Virginia gentry and, you know, in politics. Almost all of them were deists and his childhood orthodoxy waned. We do know a little vignette from his life would be a dinner at uh, the White House where uh, a Boston Unitarian is visiting. And to his amazement, he is seated between Dolly and James Madison, whom he's never met in his life. And it turns out that they wanted to talk to him about Unitarianism in Boston, particularly Madison did. And Madison at that point uttered some statements about Trinitarian creeds in early Christianity that made it very plain that he was on the Unitarian side of God not existing in a triunity. But in his later years, he may have come back to orthodoxy. There is some evidence that I put in the book to that, and I am largely convinced that he probably did. David Holmes, thank you for sharing your insights today on With Good Reason. Thank you very much for having me. David Holmes is a professor of religion emeritus at the College of William & Mary. He's the author of The Faiths of the Post-War Presidents from Truman to Obama. Major support for With Good Reason is provided by the law firm of McGuire Woods and by the University of Virginia Health System, pioneering treatments to save lives and preserve brain function for stroke patients. UVAHealth.com. Support also comes from Smithfield, a global food company committed to providing food in a responsible way so consumers can share meals and memories with family and friends. SmithfieldFoods.com. Come to the Virginia Festival of the Book in Charlottesville, March 21st through 25th. Five days, hundreds of authors. With Good Reason is produced in Charlottesville by Virginia Humanities. Allison Quantz, Elliot Majerzyk, and Kelly Libby are our producers. 
Jeannie Palin handles listener services, and our intern is Georgiana Reed. For the podcast, go to iTunes or to withgoodreasonradio.org. I'm Sarah McConnell. Thanks for listening.